Good Wednesday. This is Ozarks at Large for December 14th, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Later today, for 13 years, we've used a Daryl Sean song as our theme. When everything shut down for musicians in 2020, Daryl began performing daily online, and out of that grew a global community and new music. His latest CD, still here, out now, and was recorded entirely during the pandemic. We'll hear from the CD and from Daryl in our second half hour. First up, as Arkansas mirrors the rest of the nation in the opioid and overdose epidemic, more potent synthetic drugs and a changing consumer market have taken the nationwide crisis to new levels. In a continuation of Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith's reporting, she spoke to Kirk Lane about the lessons learned as the former director of the Arkansas Drug Department. Kirk Lane is no stranger to working in combating drug addiction beginning his career working as a police officer in central Arkansas investigating drug cases. Alongside the DEA and FBI, he later found his place as the drug director of Arkansas in 2017. But in an unexpected move, Kirk left that position last September, pivoting to work surrounding how to best spend incoming settlement money from opioid cases and helping counties figure out policies for recovery services at the Arkansas Opioid Recovery Partnership. As someone on the front lines, I ask Kirk how severe this epidemic is. So uh, it's gotten worse. I mean, we're losing about 330 people per day in our country. We're losing right now over two people a day in Arkansas itself. Um, and, you know, it's the capacity of a, of a, a large jetliner. And knowing from historically, uh, if you crash a, a jetliner with 330 people into the ground every day, uh, somebody shuts that airline down. But we've been flying this airline for too many years, and the numbers are just getting worse, and the planes are just getting bigger. Plus, I asked him what prompted the shift into honing in on opioid recovery work. Well, I think we've always been focused on opioids Uh basically, you know, from the beginning of the overprescribing, which kind of led us into this all the way merging into the synthetic opioids that we're dealing with today. Um, I think because of the, the high frequency of death or, or fatal overdose and um, the abilities, if we choose to take them to uh, counter that and save lives have been, uh, uh, been on the forefront. I was about to ask what kind of insight from that role led you into choosing your position and kind of the work that you're doing today. You know, it's been a long transition for me from from law enforcement and then uh, seeing that, uh, believe it or not, in law enforcement, I didn't know everything um, and and was embarrassed about the uh, opioid crisis that was going on at that time. It started with prescription medication. And then meeting with families and meeting with people in recovery. And so that's, uh, it's a challenge. And uh, I'm willingly uh, at the table to step up and make that challenge. Lesson number one in fighting the drug epidemic, this market is ever-changing. Every generation seemingly brings a new drug into the market. But the introduction of more intense drugs like fentanyl, which are 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine, have had deadlier consequences being fentanyls now mixed into any type drug. It can be mixed into methamphetamine, which is a strong problem in Arkansas. We're seeing in cocaine that cocaine's on a resurgence back because people are accepting it back and their cartels have a market for it in the United States. Uh, and being being able to put into an eyedropper dropped into somebody's drink as a, as a date rape drug, it's really changing the market and really have to think about is there really any safe use of drugs anymore? I would tell you that uh, in use of any type of drug with synthetic drugs in our country uh, could be a fatal experience. Four out of 10 of those fake fentanyl pills that are out there on the street show to have a fatal amount of fentanyl in them. And so it's really Russian roulette with, with too many bullets in the chamber. Which brings us to lesson number two, according to Kirk changing recovery stigmas so that we can find better solutions. I think we have to rethink of what we're doing in law enforcement to be an active part of this. And you can't arrest your way out of this problem on the treatment side and the recovery problem. Uh, and the recovery side, we need to have more people in recovery at the table guiding us in that, in that, uh, in that process. Because for so long, 
the fact that somebody was in recovery was a stigma and we always kept them away from the table uh, and especially the decision table and they need to be involved in it because they're a critical part of the solution they know what's works and so if we don't realize that and bring them to the table we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to beat this as far as your work and the solutions you're focusing on and ARORP in general, if we talk again in five years, what do you hope we'll be talking about? So I, my two cents on there is my hope is that we're talking about how we went from 618 deaths in 2021 for Arkansas down to zero um, and how we achieved what we needed to achieve. But I'm a realist and I'm worried about trends. Uh, Arkansas usually is about three years behind the rest of the states. And in the other states that we're seeing, especially from the West Coast, we're seeing a large rise in our youth and, and, and those fatal overdoses in our youth. And I'm scared that we're too, I'm hoping we're not two or three years behind those trends. And I'm hoping we're trying to deal with it because in our state, um, most of those overdose deaths and most of those naloxone saves are between the age of 20 and 60, some 80%. Um, I'd hate to see it go the other way. And, and I'm hoping that our youth, your generation, not my generation, uh, it really realizes that. And I appreciate, you know, uh, you really paying attention to it um, on this matter because, you know, it, it was our responsibility and our generation to leave it better for your generation. And we're not doing a good job at that. We're too interested in making the money. And I'm hoping that your generation will, will be the ones that uh, succeed and leave it better for the next. I spoke to former Arkansas Drug Director Kirk Lane via Zoom. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. From 19th century German language periodicals to ladies' journals and civil rights era African-American newspapers, the Arkansas State Archives is collecting, digitizing, and sending yesterday's news to the Library of Congress. Ozarks at Large's Jana Carruth has the details. For almost three years, Katie Atkins has torn through more than a century of Arkansas's news, from titles like the Stuttgart Germania, Arkansas Advocate, and the Rural and Workmen and Ladies Little Rock Journal. But just don't ask her to tell you what exactly that news was. You would think, okay, you're working with newspapers that we read them all the time, but actually we don't. Um, the process of digitizing... It, you know, does not include reading the content, typically. Adkins is project manager for the Arkansas Digital Newspaper Project. The ambitious collection is part of the Chronicling America Project, a multi-state database that provides free information on newspapers from across the country, published from 1777 up to 1963. David Ware is the director of the Arkansas State Archives. The idea is to create a vast, freely available archive of American journalism, a resource that is rich and complex and searchable and is comprehensive in its coverage. That is, all 50 states with the newspapers from each state chosen to give the best geographical and temporal distribution. That is, including papers not just from the centers of population, but also the, the rural areas, the smaller towns, and so forth. He says Arkansas first began digitizing work for the collection back in 2017 when it got the first of three grants totaling more than $600,000 from the National Endowment for the Humanities. They are now in their third cycle of the project. Atkins says the process involves pouring over microfilm to make sure each page fits within the Library of Congress's specifications which is basically looking at every page, um, taking information on uh, the quality of the page, make sure it's oriented the correct way. If there's um, uh, typos in the date, we have to indicate page numbers. We collect a bunch of data on every single page that will eventually go up onto the website. She says each cycle is funded for two years, and so far, they've uploaded 278,000 pages. That includes 90 different newspaper titles from 36 counties 
across the state, and we submitted 56 title essays to accompany them. Um, and then we also, in terms of uh, languages, we have obviously English, but we have uh, German language papers, and we have one title, the De Queen B, which has some Choctaw language. It was the first Choctaw language to be included on Chronicling America um, most recently. It was, it was put up um, several months ago, I guess. She says most of the papers they've digitized were published before 1927 due to copyright restrictions, and they've mostly tried to focus on papers that haven't already been digitized or are available online for the public to view. One of those in this cycle was the state's longest-running German-language newspaper, the Arkansas Echo. Adkins says they hit a snag when the microfilm they had was corrupted. Um, When we went to check our microfilm, we realized that some of the film did not meet the specifications, um, high densities, things like that. And so we were going to have to omit a large section of the paper. However, um, through previous work with Subiaco, um, we determined that they actually have the original papers for all of them, all of the issues for the Arkansas Echo. And so they so generously brought them to us and we were able to scan them in and um, submit an entire run of the newspaper from the very first issue to the very last issue. Adkins says she and her team, fellow archivist Chelsea Sonato, are always on the lookout for people who may have physical copies of a newspaper or journal. Anyone that may have a bunch of papers hidden in their basement, or their attic, an institution that maybe um, collected them and now they're just there and nobody knows what to do with them. If, if we can find them, um, we would love to have them. If you're a church and maybe you guys collected papers or if you were part of a certain community, um, check your attic, make sure there's nothing up there. So it's mostly word of mouth um, in in trying to locate um, original newspapers. We have the largest collection of um, Arkansas newspapers already um, at the state archives, but we are always on the lookout for others that we may not have or that may help fill in some gaps in our own coverage. And she says a major goal of this project is to fill in the history of many minority and underrepresented communities in Arkansas. Uh, One of the things we focused on this cycle was including titles from underrepresented communities like the women-owned papers, like African-American papers, non-English language papers, such as um, the uh, Arkansas Echo, the German language paper. these are going to help, I don't want to say rewrite history, but give a, give a more rounded understanding of history. Adkins says she hopes to find more contacts on African-American newspapers in the state. The Arkansas Digital Newspaper Project does include selections from the state's longest-running African-American-owned and edited paper, the Arkansas State Press, from 1941 to 1959. We are hopeful that there are more African-American newspapers out there. Um, we have such a short run of papers, sometimes with just a single issue. We, we are hopeful that at some point we may be able to find more of those through word of mouth and through reaching out to other contacts. The most recent cycle of the project ends next year, and David Ware says the archives are already working on an application for a fourth cycle now. We're focusing on Arkansas's, on papers that document Arkansas's economic development, especially related to natural resources, um, agriculture, forestry, that sort of thing essentially the transition of Arkansas from a state that was largely a bunch of subsistence farmers to a staple crop powerhouse with a steadily diversifying economy in the early years of the 20th century. For more information on the Arkansas Digital Newspaper Project and Chronicling America, 
go to chroniclingamerica.loc.gov. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Democratic state lawmakers are weighing in on their expectations for next month's legislative session. Republican Governor-elect Sarah Huckabee Sanders has said expanding school choice programs is a priority for her. That includes voucher programs, which allow state dollars to pay for students to attend private schools. Democratic State Representative Ashley Hudson of Little Rock says that may not have uniform support, particularly among lawmakers from rural parts of the state, which may not have alternatives to public school. Now we're, we're dealing with an equity issue. And so what that does, of course, just given the dem- demographics, is that we are prioritizing predominantly white children, predominantly middle and upper class children who likely had means to go to a private school if they chose to. Um, and we're deprioritizing black and brown children in areas that are already underserved and underfunded. Hudson says she hopes to introduce legislation aimed at increasing retention rates among pregnant high schoolers, as well as new penalties for distracted drivers who cause accidents leading to injuries or deaths. There's also been bipartisan support for new pay raises for teachers, though no proposals have been introduced in the pre-filing period so far. Democratic lawmakers shared their goals and predictions yesterday as part of a policy summit hosted by Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families. Representative Fred Love of Little Rock, who is moving to the Senate next year, says he believes his fellow Democrats will be able to work with incoming Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I do think that there's going to be opportunity. You, you have a new governor-elect, and I, and I know that she comes in with an agenda, but that can't be her total agenda. And so what we can do is find where the common ground is, and then let's work on the common ground. Love says he expects discussions on tax policy and the state budget will feature prominently in the session. Love says he hopes to introduce bills aimed at reforming the state's foster care system and helping people being released from prison through reentry programs. This is Ozarks at Large. On the season finale of Undisciplined, hosts Karee Banton and Matthew wrap up their conversation with Dr. Calvin White, Jr., Associate Dean of the Fulbright College and Associate Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Today's conversation is about Dr. White's research and gathering of stories of the 1919 Elaine Massacre, which historians agree is the deadliest of the race massacres that happened in the 1919 Red Summer. Arguably, it is the largest, and most historians who study the time period don't disagree with that. You know, as professionally trained historians, Dr. Benton, you know, we have to be able to so-called prove that, but we have many people who do not deny that or push back on that. The numbers of the amount of deaths, we believe, are well over 200, where there are five white casualties, but the deaths of African-Americans are believed to be over 200 there. What happens is everything you you talked about earlier with Matthew, I mean, it's, it's quintessential. You set it up quite nicely and gave the context for it. As you see some African-Americans returning home from World War II, you see greater expectations, and you see the unionization of sharecroppers there. And as a result of some African-Americans who had left the land, had left the South and resettled into Chicago and places, Detroit or Flint and places like that, you saw whites in the Arkansas and Mississippi Delta really needing labor and cracking down on the movement of their labor. But African-Americans saw this as a prime opportunity because of that shortage of labor in the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta to kind of renegotiate, force negotiation for better wages as a result of sharecropping. So they try to unionize, and they have a meeting at a little town, a little outlet. It's not even a town called Hoopspur at a church. Whites get word of it, and although we don't know exactly what happened, but there erupts from there. A, a race riot where it would be the first time that Governor Bruff, Charles Bruff, would actually release the Arkansas National Guard. And we know that planes would actually bomb certain parts of the, you know, of the town there. So it erupts in this massive race riot where later there would be 12 African-Americans who would stand trial, uh, later would be acquitted, but it completely upends, the, upends that area. And it's kind of the marker. I like to say it's the marker that most people, you know, live their lives by there. And so it's one of those things that had never really been talked about in great detail. Many African-Americans still don't like to talk about it. And when Dr. Pierce and I first came up with the notion to invite 
you know, our friends in, because we have our colleagues and our friends to give papers, we said we were not just going to concentrate on the lane, but we were going to concentrate on the intersectionality that what led to a lane, labor, race, uh, all these things, these this uneasy, what I refer to in the book as this delicate dance between whites and blacks and how it plays out in the landscape there. And so each one of the essays is looking at a different element of race and labor and the interplay of those two and the intersectionality of those two in the Arkansas, Mississippi Delta. But Elaine is the hub of the spokes that extend from there. And Dr. Pierce and I very early on, we decided that we were gonna dedicate not only this work but that conference to the people who survived and who lost their lives and to the family members uh, that who are still uh, you know, there today as a way of trying to pay homage to their resistance to a system that belittled them and economically exploited them. Wow. So here we have sharecroppers who realize that after years of being exploited, as we know sharecroppers were in a system of debt peonage, that they could unionize, you know, and unions like the progressive farmers, you know, come to be a threat to white supremacy because they wanted to keep black people in place so they could exploit their labor. Absolutely. Fascinating. And it leads to this level of brutality where bombs are dropped by the state, similar to what we see in Tulsa, which is absolutely fascinating. And I mean, the intersections with ideas of, you know, unions and, you know, black people turning left because they'd just come back from World War One, right? And the Red Scare. And all of that is intertwined with this as well. So uh, you had these uh, speakers come up here um, at the prior center and give talks, but uh, it's also how the, the massacres remembered. There's some little bit of a conflict over that, isn't there? There's a great deal of conflict over there about that. And then like with most, with most history uh, of that time period, uh, who were writing that history, they're reinforcing a lot of the works that come out are reinforcing this, what you know, Dr. Batten, you and I call this meta-narrative, uh, this meta-narrative of Negro uprising and Negro revolts and whites had to put down these Negro revolts and that. And we all know that was not the truth. So there's a body or you know, a body of work and literature out there that stems from the 20s, well, the 30s, 40s, and 50s that really hone in on that. And what we start to see is with the deepening in African-American history as form, being formalized in the 1950s and 60s taking root, we start to refute all of that earlier work and saying, that's hogwash, that's this, all this lost cause BS that we know that's not true. And as a result of that, we have colleagues who have come along and written, you know, really what we believe to be more accurately accurate narratives of what happened in the lane. And this book is just a, an addition uh, to what we believe a more accurate rendition of the historical events that happened in the lane and not this. But yes, it's this blacks revolted in the lane. Uh, whites had to put down this revolt, this uprising. Uh, there. So blacks, again, these black male bodies that you should fear, and not only these black male bodies, but these armed black male bodies that had to be put down, this, this pending revolt needed to be put down. And that's a lot of that narrative that comes out of that. And so the later bodies of work have definitely refuted a lot of those notions or those old racist tropes that we know existed and still exist even today in some, in some element, many elements of, of society we, we live in. We're recording this now a week before the midterm election. When this will air, we will most likely have a governor who claims that education systems are indoctrinating children and not teaching them. When we look at the history of Arkansas, and especially the race history of Arkansas, what are our public schools getting right, and what are our public schools missing the boat on imagine that's a really loaded question yeah he's setting you up man <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm, I'm just... well let me let me give you let me give you an out here let me uh <laughs> let's let's redirect that question a little bit when we think of the way we talk about arkansas history and public schools in arkansas 
what could schools be doing better to tell a more full story of the complicated history that we have here in Arkansas around race? Absolutely. And I'll go back to your original one as well. Telling a complete history and a complete narrative, it not only empowers African-Americans and minoritized people, but it also helps the majority. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. We are living, our kids will inherit a ever-increasing globalized world. They will not grow up, live in the same town. They will be introduced. They will, they're being trained for jobs that many of us don't even know about now. And so they're going to inherit a really diversified world in many aspects, and not just along race and ethnicity, but along that spectrum of diversity and what that means. And I feel like as we, as our Kansans and our public school systems, are not doing not only black kids, brown kids, any type of kid who sits in a classroom, white kids, a service when we are not equipping them to deal with the real world in which they are inheriting. That is the truth. We are ever growing increasingly into a multicultural, multi-everything world. And we know the studies and every, you know, every benchmark tells us that we're better because of that. We know that. But yet we have a society that pushes back against those notions when we know that everything tells us when you put a diverse group of thinkers, people who do not look like each other, work like each other, that there is innovation and discovery that comes out of that multiplicity of thinking and lived experiences. But yet we have a school system and the state of Arkansas continues to produce what we refer to as this meta narrative that continues to, to hammer these same things. So I will say one is not mutually exclusive of the other. I think white kids need to benefit from that just as much. It empowers them just as much as it empowers black kids. But I will sit and say this, when you continue to teach what we refer to as history in the way that maybe Dr. Benton and I were taught it when we were growing up. And I had a professor once look at me and he told me, he said, could you, you wonder why some of black kids or Latinx kids are not doing well in American history? And I said, no, why? You know, he said, how would you feel if you sit there three days a week, three days a week, my new ones are two days a week, and you heard nothing about yourself and everything was about someone else. Everything, think about this, Matthew. George Washington and every other demarker was about someone else who didn't look like you, who didn't speak like you, culturally was not similar to you. But yet when we come to you and how you fill in the gaps, you've been a slave, you've been a problem in the civil rights movement, and you've been a crack baby and war on crime. And if you look at that timeline, that's really what we say about black folks in that meta narrative. We look at you come from a you come from the dark continent that nothing of cultural relevance, nothing of, comes from there. We know that's not true. We know that's not true. The great empires of, of, of Western Africa, we know that's not true, but yet we don't teach our kids that. So when your kid, Matthew, or my kid doesn't learn that. We absolutely hurt both of them. This is not a zero-sum game, meaning by empowering one group does not disempower the other. And until we can detangle that, until we can say what is good for you is also good for the other, then we're going to continue to run in a circle. And we wonder why, why minoritized kids – if you sit a kid in a classroom and – you don't tell them this in so many ways, but what you're really saying is you've really been nothing of cultural attributes in this country. You've been a slave. You created problems. You were a disruptor. And then we had to create a war on crime as a result of you, then mass incarceration of you. You tell me from a meta-narrative point of view, as a black kid sitting in a classroom, is that empowering? As Du Bois says, how does it feel to be a problem? Exactly, because that's what the meta narrative says. That is exactly what that meta narrative says here. And so that is the problem that we have. And now we can expand that now, whether it is binary, non binary, gender, whether it's transgender, it all plays out the same. We have people who are not 
can feel that they fit into a society, that we have a demographic group of people saying you are a problem. You are a menace. You are a de- degenerate. How can we educate kids with something we know is not true? So to me, that is the problem. And it hurts your kid, Matthew, just as much as it hurts my kid. And until we can get people to understand that, then we're just going to run around in a circle. Dr. Calvin White Jr. is the Associate Dean of the Fulbright College and Associate Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. He's the most recent guest on Undisciplined, a podcast collaboration between KUAF Public Radio, Ozarks at Large, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. The final KUAF Lunch Hour of 2022 is this Friday and will feature music from Stephen Ivey and food from the Hip Cafe. Ivy, or Professor, as his friends affectionately call him, has served as an adjunct professor at the U of A and led the UA's gospel choir. He'll feature his funk-forward gospel sounds. The Hip Cafe, located in South Fayetteville, offers coffee beverages, baked goods, and vegan and vegetarian fare. Gospel sounds and yummy smells. It's the KUAF Lunch Hour, this Friday, December 16th. Doors open at noon, music begins around 12.15, and it's free. You can get tickets at eventbrite.com. Just search Lunch Hour Tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being with us. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Art Ventures has been in operation as a gallery and arts educational organization in some form since 2009. Their gallery is at 20 South Hill in Fayetteville, and it includes works from many artists who live and work in our region. But the mission of Art Ventures extends beyond the gallery. According to Lakeisha Edwards, Art Ventures Executive Director, the nonprofit's work extends from three pillars. Artist representation, art education for youth, and community collaboration. Last week, Lakeisha came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to talk about the work and about the nonprofit's specific day today of fundraising. But I asked her first about those three pillars. All of this is the foundation of our mission because that's why we exist, to make sure that our vulnerable communities and our marginalized communities have access to arts and culture, that our local artists are really being pushed forward into mainstream and celebrated and not just tolerated, right? Not just show up and say, oh, yeah, we put a couple of local people here. We really want them to have a meaningful seat at the table. And then with community collaborations, we know in marginalized communities that we have to do the extra work to actually go into the communities and draw them out because they already assume that it's not somewhere they belong. You mentioned into the mainstream and and part of what Art Venture, there is a gallery, we should point out there's a gallery in Mm -hmm. Fayetteville, but part of what Art Venture does is put art other places where you may or may not expect to see art. Correct. Um, Like right now, we have pieces in the Ramble, and we also have exhibitions at the library and at the Chamber of Commerce and at Startup Junkie, and just recently put an installation at the airport. Oh, that had to be fun. It was. um, It was a little troublesome, but fun. Um, Trying to figure out how to get all of the pieces inside the building, getting the security clearance. Boy, it is on lockdown out there. Um, Just even kind of thinking about ways to represent all of our artists. So we ended up doing a collage just to show the variety of art that our artists are capable of creating. And then putting, of course, our logo and our website to make sure that everyone has equal access. So if someone sees our website, they can go to our website, they can see each of those artists, and they can see all the things that they're all capable of doing. You mentioned the Ramble. That's a a nice little new park area in Fayetteville, Mm -hmm. just off of the Razorback Greenway, or kind of on the Greenway and part of the Greenway. And there are So that's outdoor installations. So it's not just focused on indoor, outdoor. We also do virtual. We have virtual exhibitions on our website that we began doing during COVID. And of course, even now, there are people who are not as comfortable coming out into the in-person events. So we also try to create reels and post lots of pictures on our Instagram and our Facebook and our LinkedIn so that people that are not comfortable coming in person still can have that experience. Celebrating local artists. This is a fertile area for artists, and and sometimes we don't always remember that. It is. um, It's a very fertile area. However, it's usually reserved for those who know someone, who are in the right rooms, who have a particular... 
following or, you know, a brand already. So that's why arts and uh, one of the reasons art ventures exist, so that we can be that brand for them, so that we can put them in rooms that they've never been in, so that we can go and we can speak on their behalf and not only get them in those spaces, but if we sell, we sell at premium prices. So we want people to actually respect the craft of the artist and not try to make a bargain out of it. With our acquisition with Sterling Bank, we were able to get many of our artists several pieces in their space and curate that space and really give them an opportunity to not only shine and receive, of course, the um, full payments for the artwork that they displayed, but also putting artwork in a space where people really want it to feel more at home. If you go into Sterling Bank, it makes you want to stay there all day. And I've never been in a bank that I really wanted to spend much time in, but um, just seeing the local artists there, it just feels good. How do you connect with artists? Because none of us know all the artists that exist. How do you make sure you're, you're reaching out to someone we may not know about. So coming here, not having any friends, family, or connections, um, I really focused on building a brand for the organization so that we would draw people to us. And it's working. Um, we have lots of artists that contact us directly, and they contact us through our website, or they email us, and they say, hey, you know, I'm interested in being a part of this. And then a lot of time, artists beget artists. So we bring one artist into an exhibition, then they bring someone to the first Thursday event, or they bring someone to the opening reception, and then we meet another artist, and then it just kind of goes by word of mouth. We also do um, look to go into the university, and we have an internship program with University of Arkansas, as well as collaborations with um, the community college. And when we look at their art programs, we really talk to the directors and we talk to the teachers and the professors that are really close with these students to kind of figure out what they're interested in. How do you make sure that you continue to include as many people as you can? So I believe the most effective way is making sure that we have proper representation. So in our exhibitions, we make sure that people can see things and people that they can relate to. We also invite various communities into our space so that when people come into our space, they have access to that diversity. Many of the people who come into our gallery, they experience a level of diversity that they probably don't have access to in any other space in their life, not where they go to church, not where they go to school, not their neighborhoods. So it's really this mecca for people to come together, appreciate art and culture, and also be able to talk to other people and hear other people's uh, experiences and their thoughts around art. Um, even with our artists, we represent a vast variety of and diverse artists. So we bring people to the table that we know have either been overlooked or they just haven't had an opportunity. You mentioned the three pillars. Even before that, you mentioned you're a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. So to be a nonprofit, that means you have to operate on, well, much of it, the, the generosity of, of people. Yeah, nonprofit means we really don't make a profit, right? <laughs> um, we do not have consistent revenue streams. So that means that our bills are paid by the generosity of the community members who want us to be sustainable and continue to exist. We know the importance of art and culture. We know the importance of pushing forward our local artists. We see the gaps in education with art education, and we want to help fill that. We want to bring other community leaders together and community um, organizations that are doing the work with the type of clients and the community that we're attempting to reach. And we can only do that if we receive support from the community. Um, we consistently ask for people to donate at the gallery or online. Today we are asking that people really take the time to evaluate the work that we've been doing in the community and really show the value by donating and really giving back to the community to ensure the sustainability of our organization. Lakeisha Edwards is the executive director of Art Ventures. You can find out more about them at artventures-nwa.org or you can call them at 871-2722.
Next in Walton Arts Center's Starlight Jazz Club, pianist Edward Simon performs alongside his trio and special guest artists, the award-winning Mexican vocalist Magos Herrera and percussionist Luis Quintero in a program celebrating the legacy of Latin American women songwriters. It's Friday, December 16th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active of lifestyles and resident well-being, offering daily activities, a variety of living options, plus wellness amenities including an aquatic center and fitness facilities. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. This is Ozarks at Large and this is Daryl Sean on the guitar. That's a familiar song for listeners of this program. It's the first hurrah from Daryl's 2009 CD, body of a poet. He's just released his latest record. It's called Still Here, a fitting title for a post-shutdown world. It was recorded entirely during the pandemic, which began for Daryl, like for many of us, on March 13th, 2020. That was the first date he had a gig canceled because of the virus. For 100 days, he performed live on social media from his home at 5 o'clock his time, and then he kept going, taking weekends off. A global community has developed around the shows that continue today. And these shows include All Request Days and other themed afternoons. I recently reached Daryl via Zoom about a half hour before what was then going to be his next live digital concert to ask him about the new CD and about what the live social media performances meant. I mean, if nothing else, it's a reinforcement of the value of music. You know, like I play solo instrumental guitar, which not everybody is attracted to or may have or may have even listened to before that. But a lot of what people have continued to say is that it's it's the fact that it's a safe space, that I'm always like very accepting of whoever pops on. Uh, Cause I have people around the world who just like pop on just all of a sudden, maybe I've never even seen them before. They'll just find it and, and pop on and be accepting of those people and everyone who wants to come. And I don't tolerate, you know, any, you know, any bad talk or on acceptance or whatever like that. And so people feel content to come and often conversations happen as I'm playing and I don't mind it. People are commenting, you know, chatting up, chatting, ch- chatting with each other, catching up. And I don't mind that at all. So I think just, I think that, and the music kind of provides an opportunity for that. And then people do get, people do say that they really get just a, a nice positive vibe from, from the music itself, as well as the community that's formed. You write in the liner notes to still hear that during this time you explored a new instrument, not it was a guitar, but it was a different kind yeah. of guitar. Yes, that was an amazing thing that also came out through uh, through these shows. Um, <clears throat> there's a, a music store here that I go to a lot, and I often do demos for them. I shoot little videos with their guitars, and uh, they had loaned me this guitar, a steel string guitar, which is not my main instrument. I've always just played. Every one of my recordings up to this point has been just nylon string, the same old nylon string mm-hmm. guitar. They gave me the steel string to try out. And just instantly I bonded with it. I just fell in love with the thing and it's pretty expensive guitar, but I loved it. And I started playing it on the shows and people really liked the sound of it right away. And they saw that I was excited about it. So I was talking to them about trying to find a way to purchase it. And they, and, and, and they actually suggested, why don't you do a campaign and we can, and we can chip in. And so I launched and I think it was within a week, maybe the whole guitar was paid for. Wow. Um, it still blows my mind. It was just an amazing thing, um, you know, and it was, you know, I was promising to do cover songs or dedicated shows, that kind of thing. And people were super generous and just almost immediately paid for this guitar. I can't believe it. <laughs> and I just love it. And uh, probably half the songs on the record are written with that guitar and performed that guitar. And it's the first time, my first time ever recording with steel string guitar. Is there something different about writing a song with steel strings? It really is. It's it's just such a different instrument. It almost feels like it's just a different kind of guitar entirely. Like like the nylon string is like one thing. This is another thing entirely. Uh, you have so much more sustain with a steel string. It just goes on and on and on. You have this really incredibly trebly bright attack that you can take advantage of. Um, the uh, string spacing is also smaller. Um, the nylon string guitar at least the ones that I use, they're really made for classical playing. So there's a lot of, it's a wide neck, a lot of space to get your right hand fingers in between the strings. A steel string guitar like this, it's possible to finger pick, but it's really made for like pick style playing, all kinds of different playing. 
the strings are closer together. And that offers different opportunities for the kind of voicings I can do also. Um, but especially, I think the sustain is the biggest thing. There are notes, you know, there are, there are songs that I play on my Allen string guitar where the notes will just die out after a little bit. And I depend on that. When it comes to the, to the steel string, they'll keep ringing out over top all the other notes that are coming. So you have to really be conscious of how you're muting the strings that are ringing. It's a, it's a whole different thing. And then just the, the fact that you have all this high-end treble harmonic content means when you do something like play a harmonic on it, play a high chord, you just have all these other notes happening, which just gives you this whole other possibility, this, this whole other realm of possibilities in an Allen string guitar. It's a whole, it's a whole, it's a whole different beast. Is there a song on Still Here that you can, that you think we can really hear those, those qualities? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, I would say, uh, early morning Amsterdam. Uh, and that, and that song actually was in fact a, um, was in fact a, um, a commission that came through the guitar. Um, in fact, it was. So that one was written on the steel string guitar, and I wanted it to be written on the steel string guitar. And in that one, I really took advantage of of all that additional kind of high-end content, a couple of places where I'm just playing three strings, just kind of playing between three strings. And there's so much going on. I feel like it doesn't need to be supported from underneath by a bass note. There's so much going on. Um, also, it's, it's all finger picking. There's no strumming through it, finger picking. Uh, but it's a very delicate, it's a very delicate approach to it. And to me, the ringing, this, the long sustain in there um, really, really stands out a lot. But the song still here is with your old friend. Yes, exactly. And that's actually the other half of still here. Still here itself being, again, like a tribute to everyone for making their way through it and the people who stuck with me through it. But also in that with, you know, I really fell in love with that new guitar. And I wasn't I wasn't spending any time with 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 my with a nylon string there. I just started, got to a point where for a whole week I would just be playing nothing but the steel string. And one day I just sat down with the with the old one and like that song just came almost right away. My favorite song on this CD is The Long View. I think okay. it just carries the listener to a different place. It's the last song. And I'm wondering, did you intentionally think that that should be the end of the album? Right. Well, thanks. Uh, I appreciate the the kind words. Certainly. You know, when I when I wrote the song, it was actually written for a wedding. It was actually a recessional for a wedding. Mm. Only got to play 20 seconds of it in the wedding itself, and I actually added the bridge section after the fact. But it always kind of stuck at me as being something very special in its mood. Um, you know, like it, it fit the wedding, it fit the sort of recessional thing, but I felt like it kind of went beyond that. Just kind of looking, looking forward with with optimism is kind of what I wanted to do. And I realized that in the album, especially with the arrival of the steel string, there uh, there aren't too many songs that are based on strumming. There's kind of three or four that are based on strumming. In the past, I've had ones that are almost entirely really loud, strum full, big chords guitar. And this is one strumming song. It just strums all the way through it, hitting all six six strings. It's just fun to play. And it felt like the right note to end the album on. Just like to me, it feels like unrestrained optimism. Yes. And I yeah, <laughs> that's that's really the point. And and I know for myself, I very often will have have that be sort of like in sort of golden triangle 
part where like three quarters of the way through, you'll have some really climax like that and back off a little bit, have like this denouement, like this little kind of quieter ending. And this time I want to just kind of like do a bang. It's like, let's just end it with this thing. That's like, it's pretty clear mood. I just want to do it like that. So it seemed when I started putting together a sequence for the album, right away, it came like, okay, that should be the, that should be the ending for sure. Do, do the people who you wrote that for their wedding, do they know it's been expanded? They do actually. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Um, I haven't actually haven't gotten a reaction from them on the rest of the album, but they do and they really dig it. So yeah, it's, it's really nice. And it's really nice to have that, have that life also. Cause I've written so much music for weddings now and it's very, it's always interesting to hear the reaction of people after I record it. And especially if I change it, I evolve it or they get to hear four minutes of a thing that they heard 10 seconds of when they were very much distracted by other things. I should also mention because it's this time of year that you can still find online your takes on many holiday songs. Yes, actually. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, I have uh, I have two two CDs that I did, uh, Holly Days, Volume One and Two, and um, on on Spotify. One is among one of them is on Spotify now, but both are on Bandcamp, so people can stream them also. Yes, it was really fun to do, and I and I hope to do more of that in the future. It takes a lot of time, and it's hard for me to stomach Christmas music before December one. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> You know what I mean? So, so for me to plan a Christmas release, I would have to start in like July working on Christmas music. And it's been hard to generate that enthusiasm again, but thank I will. You. I really need to do a volume three. It feels wrong to stop it. Stop it, too. But thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, they're out there. The latest CD is still here. Daryl, thanks for making the CD. Thanks for continuing making music. By my watch, you've got about seven minutes to get ready for your final awesome. uh, online concert of this week. Thank right you so on. much. Thank you so much, Cal. So good to talk to you. Daryl Sean's new CD is titled Still Here. You can find Daryl online performing live every weekday at 4 Central by searching for his Facebook and Instagram feeds. We spoke to him by Zoom just before he was scheduled to start one of those shows. This is Ozarks at Large. The KUAF Giving Tree, benefiting area nonprofit groups for over a decade, has teamed up with Seven Hills Homeless Center during this season of giving. Seven Hills works to develop and implement collaborative, local solutions that foster hope, opportunity, and stability for people experiencing homelessness. They provide a wide range of basic needs and housing services, as well as working closely with other area groups to help decrease homelessness in our communities. Seven Hills' biggest needs are canned soups, coats, socks, gloves, and winter hats. Drop off your donation of new or gently used items at KUAF, 9 South School in Fayetteville. Find more about Seven Hills online at sevenhillscenter.org. The Giving Tree and KUAF Public Radio. Make your voice matter. Tomorrow on our show, examining a decline in rural African-American-owned farms. I mean, if you can't get excited about that with 80% of the land gone that you once had, you know, that can light a fire under you to try and uh, stop that. We're almost an endangered species now, to speak, so to speak. So, Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports on tomorrow's program at noon and at 7. And on the Ozarks at Large podcast, available where you get your podcasts. This is KUAF 91.3 Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Little Flock. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Daniel Carruth, and Dr. Karee Banton. A major, major (laughs) thank you to Timothy Dennis for saving the day today, getting us on the air, making sure we could do this show today. Coming in, thank you so much for your help today, Timothy. We'll say technical wizardry provided by... Timothy Dennis. Exactly. And additional material today provided by KUAR Public Radio in Little Rock. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. We will have a show tomorrow at noon and 7. We're going to go out with today's show with some music from Daryl Sean.